I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 18 and beginning at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. It would be great if you could keep your Bibles open at that passage in Luke 18. Just in case you're wondering, we haven't skipped ahead in our Luke series. We're up to much earlier than that. This is a kind of a one-off talk that we're doing on Luke chapter 18 with the topic of money, as uh, Steve has mentioned for us. Uh, Let's pray as we come to look at this together. There will be a chance for questions later on as well. So if anything comes up on the way through that you'd like to ask a question about, please just make a note of it and feel free to ask a question later on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Uh, We pray that as we come to reflect a bit more on this part of your word now, you will give us soft and open and obedient hearts to hear what you have to say to us because we want every part of our lives uh, to be uh, given over to you and to be following Jesus in in every part of what we do and, and in our hearts. And we pray that in particular today in regards to the topic of money. Amen. It has been my aim, uh, and it will continue to be, that every year we spend at least one week talking about the spiritual significance of money. As Steve kind of hinted it, it does kind of tend to be a bit of a taboo topic in our culture generally, and even maybe even more so in churches. You know, we, we don't feel comfortable talking about that. But um, you, you might have heard the 18th century uh, pastor and preacher and evangelist John Wesley Uh, famously said, the last part of a person to be converted is, anyone know? Their wallet, that's right. And and I suspect that if he lived in the 21st century, he probably would have said the same thing. And and I wonder if he, that has a certain ring of truth to it, don't you think? The last part of a man to be converted is his wallet, that that money and the things that money can buy or or the, the, the appeal that it has can maintain its grip on our heart long after 
someone has put their trust in Jesus and, and started following Jesus. So that we continue to kind of prioritise and to make decisions based on money and the things of wealth and the pursuit of it and, it conti- and, we, and we pursue joy in life based on the things that money can provide in a way that often compromises the kind of trust in Jesus and the life of following Jesus that God wants us to have. And so it's not surprising, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's not surprising that Jesus speaks about the spiritual significance of money more than almost any other topic. So if we talk about it once a year, then I suppose that's at least getting somewhere in the right direction. But as we come to hear what Jesus has to say about the topic of money, I wonder whether he might express what John Wesley said even more strongly. That that he might say something like, unless your wallet is converted, so to speak, unless your wallet is converted, then you cannot be converted. I wonder if that more accurately describes how Jesus approaches the topic of money and that we see in this passage today. Let's have a look at it. The the first thing that we're going to see is the danger of trying to hide our hearts from God behind an impressive resume of morality. You know, you know an, an achievable and acceptable and impressive barrier it becomes, really, that we try and hide our hearts from God behind all the good things that we do. I think that's what this guy does. This ruler, you see from verse 18, this ruler comes to Jesus with a question. You hear the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just have a look at this guy with me. He comes off looking not that good in the end if we're familiar with the story he's not a guy that we want to kind of identify with and so it's easy to paint him in a negative light but just have a look at him for a moment with me this is a guy who is interested in and who is actively seeking the things of God right he's asking this question what must I do to inherit eternal life and he goes to the right person to ask the question right he goes to Jesus that's the right place to go with this kind of question and He has been conscientious his entire life about keeping God's commands and Jesus doesn't deny that. He doesn't kind of question as to whether that's authentic or not. We have no reason to doubt that. I mean, isn't this someone that we actually might want to be like? Isn't this the kind of guy you might expect to find sitting in church on a Sunday? Isn't this the kind of guy who you would expect is actually pretty close to achieving the answer to that question that he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus answers the guy and says, one thing you still lack, it sounds like he's pretty close, right? You know, just, just one more thing, you're nearly, nearly there. But it turns out that that one thing is actually everything. It's the whole thing. And Jesus' answer to this guy's question, I think, really highlights for us what this guy's real problem is. What we're going to see is that that Jesus' answer to this man exposes his heart and where his real love is. Now, did you notice that when Jesus answered this guy's question and he lists those commands, you know, you know the commands, he says, and he lists a bunch of them. He doesn't list all of them. He lists he lists a bunch of them, about four or five, and but what he does is he picks ones that this guy, and I suspect probably most people could say, yeah, I've kept those, tick, excellent, I'm doing all right, tick, I've done all those. Now, we know from elsewhere 
that Jesus actually raises the bar on what it really looks like to keep those commands. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal and so on. You know, when Jesus raises the bar on, on what it really looks like, that it's not just a matter of your outward actions, you know, have you actually murdered somebody? But Jesus says, actually, no, murder also includes hating someone. And adultery also includes lust. But Jesus doesn't bring that up here. And, and, and I think he deliberately chooses those commands so that this guy, and perhaps us as, as we read along, can genuinely say, yes, I've kept all of those. And Jesus doesn't argue with him about that. But what he does do when he hears this guy's answer is he exposes, as I said, his real love, exposes the love of his heart. He knew that this guy's love was money and that his love of money was keeping him from truly coming to God and from actually following Jesus. Did you notice that was the goal of Jesus' instruction there in verse 22? To give up, to, to sell all he has and give to the poor and come follow me. The goal was following Jesus. But Jesus knew that he can't do that while his heart is still loving his money. And we're going to come back to uh, talk quite a bit about the spiritual significance of money and the hold that it can have on our hearts and the danger that that uh, poses. But the first point that I want to make just here is to notice what this guy is doing and what is so common and easy to do, that is to build for himself this impressive wall of credentials, you know, of, of morality, of good things, of a lifestyle that I can present to God that becomes actually a wall that I can hide behind, hide the, the thing that I, I really preciously don't want to give up to God. I hide that behind and don't hand it over to God. It's kind of like a kid, you know, who's told to, to share his toys with his brother or sister. And so the kid goes, yeah, I'll, I'll share all my toys here or they are. But what he does is he puts at the front those ones that he actually doesn't really mind giving up and, and in hope that he can hide behind those ones the, the, the precious one, the one that he doesn't want anyone to see because he doesn't want to give that one up. That's, I think, what this guy is doing. And I suspect, in fact, I'm sure he's not the only one. You know, I can convince myself that I'm a moral person. We want to be able to convince ourselves of that. And there are lots of things that we can point to as evidence of that. Yes, I look at all this stuff that I do. God should approve of these things. Just look at those, don't look at, don't look at this. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the religious middle class in Jesus' day, or the moral middle class, ended up being so hostile to Jesus. You know, attracted to him at first because he was intriguing and had some good things to say, but in the end hostile to him because Jesus saw through that moral barrier that we put forward to say, look at these good things that I'm, I'm presenting to God. And he challenged what was behind that in their hearts. And he does that to each one of us, right? We don't get to choose what God sees we don't get to put forward a presentation to God, a, a highlights package of my strengths. I wonder what you would put out there as the highlights package to say, God, look at these things. I'm doing okay. While at the same time hiding what's actually most precious and hope that God doesn't see it. So this, guys, I said, is a warning for us. The danger of hiding 
the real treasure of your heart from God behind you know, those things that you might want to put forward, an impressive wall of morality to God. That's the first thing that I want to mention. And up until this point, I suspect we could take away just a fairly broad uh, general lesson from what Jesus says to this guy. That is, make sure that there is no treasure in your heart that you're unwilling to give up that's keeping you from genuinely trusting and following Jesus. Make sure you're not just putting forward a bunch of good things that you think God would be happy with, but that's really a smokescreen protecting your real treasure because that's too precious. You know, look at all these things, God, just don't look at this. Now, I think that is an important challenge that comes out of this encounter with Jesus. But the real challenge is actually more specific than that. And if we go away with only that, then I think we've missed the point. Because it's not just that this guy's idol was money and we all have different idols. Uh, You might have this idol and I might have that other idol. We need to recognise and identify and get rid of those, whatever they might be. This passage is actually more specifically about money. Because we do sometimes talk about, I don't know if you, if you do, but we often talk about the, the idea of identifying the idols in your heart to make sure that you, you kind of get, get rid of them. But you know, there's actually only one thing that the Bible ever talks about as being an idol, other than actually bowing down to worship statues, gold and silver and so on. The only one thing that the Bible ever talks about as actually being an idol and idolatry, and that is greed. The love of money. No other idols that we might call them, or sport or lifestyle or whatever, are called idols except for money. And Jesus tells us that the love of money has a a special ability, or maybe even a unique ability, to captivate our hearts and draw our hearts away from God, to be the treasure of our hearts. Yes, any, any number of things can draw our hearts away from God and we need to be on guard against that. Hence, the, that is the first point to make sure that whatever that is, we're not keeping it secret from God. But the love of money does have a special place in that, in that category. It's the one thing that is explicitly identified as an alternative God that we might worship, that draws our love and devotion that we make our decisions and our devotion around, that, that our commitment and our ambition is driven by and for in ways that only our commitment and ambition and love and devotion should be devoted to God. So as I said, while we do well to identify whatever idols might be specific for us, Jesus is saying something more specific and, and significant here about money and we need to feel the weight of that. And and you see that in his his conclusion in verse 24 and 25. Have a look at that with me. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. That wealth in particular is a spiritual danger that can keep people out of the kingdom of God. 
And so if we just generalise Jesus' teaching as if it's about just finding the treasure of my heart and giving that over to God, we'd be ignoring the elephant in the room or the camel in the room, I guess, in, in this case. Whatever Jesus says to, to that guy and, and his specific situation, he says to everyone, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so we need to be careful, I think, that we don't water down Jesus' teaching about money as if he doesn't mean what he says there. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That is impossible than for someone who is rich to enter heaven. Not just hard, but impossible. And clearly this surprised some people, right? And I think it still surprises us today, even though we hear it lots of times, because we, we just don't believe that it's true, I suppose. And they thought, I reckon, that this guy was as close as you could possibly be. I mean, up until this point, he seems like he's on the, on the cusp, right? He's ju- just about there. And what Jesus goes on to say next is really wonderful news, isn't it? That we need to hear, but again... As we hear the wonderful news that Jesus says in the following verses, we need to make sure that it doesn't undermine his teaching about the spiritual dangers of wealth. Let me read from verse 26 and 27 now. So they said, who then can be saved? Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do the impossible. He can save anyone. Yeah, no one can do what is necessary to inherit eternal life. That's the guy's question. No one can do that. Only God can do it. And the good news is that God can do it for anyone and for everyone who comes to him. This is God's generosity towards us, his amazing generosity, a a generous and costly gift, generous from God and costly to him. And can I say that if you don't know this for yourself, then this is what you need to hear, that God can save anyone. This is God's free and generous gift through Jesus. And that is wonderful news. And this really is what we're on about, right? Hearing this, trusting it, holding on to it all the more dearly, letting it shape every aspect of our lives, sharing it with others, living our lives in light of it. But here's the thing, right? We need to hear that wonderful news that God can do the impossible with every single one of us. But plenty of times I've read these verses and the wonderful news that they have, that God can save anyone, and I've then let that empty Jesus' teaching about the dangers of money of any real significance for me. And I wonder if you've done the same. It it, it loses all its weight. Because my thinking kind of goes like this. I hear Jesus say, well, it's impossible, but God can do the impossible. And therefore, it doesn't really matter that much if I want to pursue wealth. If if my aspirations are for for being more wealthy, uh, that's not as much of an issue because God can do the impossible. He can save me either way. And so I don't need to take Jesus' warning about the spiritual dangers of wealth seriously as long as I know God's grace through Jesus. That's kind of how I undermine Jesus' teaching here and I wonder whether you might sometimes do the same. But can you see how that does exactly that? It undermines what Jesus says. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That wealth, that the love of money or even desiring 
wealth that you don't have, you know, envying those who have more, because you can always find someone who has more, right? We could all do with a little bit more. That has almost a unique ability to draw our hearts away from God because we can't love God and money. And as I said, we can deceive ourselves that that's going on because we do what this guy does. We can put forward an impressive resume, that wall of, of, of morality, of right living that says, check this out, God, I'm doing all right. Jesus wants us to hear that the love of money is a very real spiritual danger and one that we need to take seriously. And if we do want to draw closer to God, then that will have implications for our money. So what might this actually look like? Now, I I don't think that Jesus' answer to this guy, sell everything and give to the poor, is a universal requirement for everyone. Yeah, everyone says. But what is universal is that we need to take seriously that the spiritual dangers of wealth and not just try and hold both of them as, as high and as tightly as possible. Yes, I want to love God and money and just do that together. And surely if we are going to take it seriously, it must include, like it did for this guy, being willing to give up some of our wealth or our aspirations towards wealth. Now, surely the best indicator of whether we're holding on to a love for money is whether we're willing to actually give some of it up. And willing to do so in a way that is both generous and costly. Generous and and costly. Like the suggestion that Jesus gave to this guy. Yeah, we might feel good about ourselves if we say gave $50 to someone in need, just you know, spontaneously, or or to a worthwhile cause. But I was thinking about that recently because recently one of our kids lost $50. They'd been given a gift of a $50 note and they lost it, you know, had it one day, just couldn't find it the next day. And that was disappointing for her and frustrating for us that they didn't take better care of it. But you know what? It had almost no impact on their life, really, or ours. No practical impact losing that money. You know, it was there one day, gone the next, and it didn't really make that much difference at all. And it kind of made me have a think about what actually does it look like to be generous in giving our money? I might feel generous if I gave $50 to a worthwhile cause, but I might not have noticed if I just lost that money instead. And I spend much more than that and much more regularly on stuff that I want and stuff for me, stuff that I love. Now, of course, everyone's financial situation is different, But I wonder, what does costly generosity look like for you? The New Testament doesn't give us a figure, any numbers of what that should look like. You're probably familiar that the Old Testament says 10% of what you earn. And surely that's a good starting place, right? But it'll be different for all of us, and some will be able to give much more even than that. But for all of us, to recognise that this is actually God's money, not mine. And to use it effectively for the things that God loves and not just the things that I love and benefit from. And we're also told, I don't know if you heard this expression, to give the first fruits, not the leftovers, the best 
and not the, the, the dregs. And I think what that means is that we should make decisions about being generous, you know, gospel generosity, before we make some of our other decisions about, about life and what to, you know, for ourselves. So, you know, that question that we sometimes ask ourselves, what can I afford in whatever aspect of life, about housing, where shall I live, um, holidays, uh, car, just general lifestyle, clothing, entertainment, hobby, you know, what can I afford? Instead of kind of asking all those questions and then afterwards going, and then how can I be generous with what's left over? To actually start at the other end and go, well, how can I be generous with what God has given me? And then after that, to just trust God with the kind of life and lifestyle that I'm able to live as a result of that. And I think that that's actually what Jesus is getting at in the last few verses of this passage, where he talks about the goodness of giving things up as we follow him and receiving back many times what we give up. And he says, in this age, in this life, as well as in the age to come, eternal life. Now, this is not, you might have heard of the prosperity gospel, this is not the prosperity gospel, which is a terrible and damaging corruption of what Jesus says, as if God is a good investment, you know, and, and so giving more to God is a great way of building my own wealth. The more generous I am, the more I'll receive back financially. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's simply saying you can trust God, that he has your good in his hands as you give things up to follow him. There is great blessing in following Jesus, even in this life, even in the costliness that that involves in this life. If only we would trust him enough to do it. And yeah, there are tons of examples of and, and stories about exactly this kind of thing in the Bible and in people's lives, in my own life and in the lives of others I know. I mean, think, for example, about the Apostle Paul. I mean, he gave up so much. He gave up you know, everything in his following of Jesus. In one sense, it seemed like he had nothing. And yet he had families and homes in pretty much every city of the known world to welcome him in. This was a single guy with no kids, no family, so to speak. And yet he had a bigger family and more homes than anyone. And it's not like he was doing it for that reason, but this was God doing what Jesus had promised and providing what Jesus had said God would would provide, along with the persecutions that Jesus also promised. You might also remember a, a few weeks ago we had Ben come and speak to us about uh, the ministry that he's involved with sharing Jesus with Muslims and the massive cost that it can often be if someone comes from a Muslim background and begins to trust and follow Jesus. And often that involves their families rejecting them, right? Losing their families. And that sounds like what Jesus is talking about here. Losing you know, mothers and fathers and, and children and so on because of following Jesus. And he also talked about the, the, the cost that he himself and his family bears in being involved in that ministry. But also, did you hear him talk about the, the amazing blessing that he experiences and, and others experience as they do this? 
as people come and put their trust in Jesus and they find new spiritual family and, and there is just such blessing in that, even in the cost that they bear. And even personally, for, for Helena and I, over the years, there have been plenty of times where we have felt the cost, you know, materially and relationally in following Jesus, but also countless times when we have been blessed in ways that we just had not expected. And yet the real challenge still for us is not to forget that and, and, and to continue to believe it, not to think, well, our big sacrifices are in the past and now we need to focus on comfort for the future, but to continue trusting God that the life of costly generosity is the good life that God has called us to live. As I said, this is not about a return on investment, but it is part of the life of trusting the good God who gives us all good things, a life where we can trust him enough not to hold too tightly onto, I guess, what we might call the security that money can give or we think it can give or the lifestyle that money can give and maybe some of us lean towards loving the security and others of us love leaning towards loving the, the lifestyle that money can give us. But instead, in fact, the reverse of that, believing what Jesus says here, that loving money and holding on to it tightly can be a spiritual danger that can keep us from God. And so as I finish now, I wonder if I could just ask a question uh, for each of us into the future. That is, what do you want for your life in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? Do you want to have grown in wealth? or have enjoyed the, the good life that money can provide? Or do you want to have grown in knowing the God who gives life and who gives all good things, all the goodness that goes with that, both in this life and in the age to come eternal life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this really is one of those things that you tell us to trust you in and yet we often balk at that kind of trust because we are conscious of the, the cost of trusting you in this way. And, and so we ask that you'll help us to, to uh, have hearts that are ready and willing to trust you in, in real ways in this regard and, and not to um, let our love of money be the thing that we are holding on to even while we try and trust and follow Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.